0: everyone out there. This is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and we have a a topic today from Ramdas that nobody really wants to hear about because every day we deal with it. It's called suffering, and uh, this is a fantastic talk. All the ins and outs. Of, and the trials and tribulations of how we deal with suffering on a day-to-day. And there's plenty of it, eh? But before I get into that, and uh, that talk from Ramdas, I do want to mention that his book, Walking Each Other Home with Mirabai Bush, is coming out September 4th. This is mid-August, or will let's see, not quite... 2018, mid-August, so time to pre-order is there. So if you're really intending to buy the book, it would help enormously if you pre-ordered it because that way all of those stores and online Amazons and all, they will see the nature of the desire for this book to be in as many hands as possible, and they will make it way more visible. So if you can do that, you can just go to ramdas.org and you'll see a link to where you can pre-order. Or just go up. I mean, the easiest thing is just go and pre-order it on Amazon. But if you're around a Barnes & Noble store, your local bookstore, please go there. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is this new offering, adventure venture rather, that we are doing with Justin Beretta and, of Glitch Mob and Justin... Did this extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily beautiful uh, music for a Ramdas uh, meditation. Ramdas did back in the day when he first came back from India the second time. If that makes sense. Uh, it's a, a really uh, deep and powerful uh, guided meditation, and and Justin did it total justice. So uh, you can find that at uh, propellerla.com. It's our partners that we're, we're doing some crowdfunding with to continue doing these kinds of projects that really marry music and Ramdas's words in a way that uh, makes it even more accessible to people. So and, and reaches on, a, on, on, of course, the music platform, which is universal for all of us. So please do go there. Go to ramdas.org, and you can find it. Find a path through to look at the uh, campaign, and also more to the point, be able to actually hear where it's all being streamed uh, from the site. Uh, so uh, please take advantage of that. And now, why suffering? Ramdas talks here about you know the Eastern models. He talks about of removing oneself from the desire systems and retreat into cave caves that's what Ramdas thought was going on way back in the day when he first uh, was in kenji for those six eight months and was being taught yoga um and so the model is you get high doing that and you push everything else away push all the undesirable stuff away you live in the mountains because the cities bring you down uh, so, you know, basically we, we get really scared that any, any serene, empty, uh, still place that we might get to through uh, completely only involving ourselves in practice, well, you don't want that to go away or be undercut so he says you start this whole process of pushing stuff away. And, uh, and therein comes suffering. Uh, we armor our hearts with our minds, and, and, and there's definitely a cost for that action. Um, the goal, one would say, to really offset the way in which we become just a reactive mechanism to everything that appears, all phenomenon that appears to us, is is to allow the spirit, intuitive heart, soul, whatever you want to call that thing there, that deepest truth in us, to be fed by a boundless interaction with absolutely everything around us tough goal but a good one so ramdas talks about that uh, and talks about how the other thing that ha- can happen is we start we become a little bit more loving because we're a little bit less self involved uh, but and and you, you see how that really feeds you but at the net, at the same time you start to become selective about who it is you're reaching out to because you, know, you don't want to incur any more suffering you're, you're going to qualify quite you know how it is that we uh, that you bring somebody say into your life that um, is suffering so you're qualifying and and we do that Ram Dass has that great story right that great analogy of when you go into the forest you, you see trees you don't judge them one tree another tree they look different they're all soulful (laughs) of course you go out into the world you go out in the streets and you're judging every person left and right so yeah that's all to uh, put off suffering so it's a really great talk Um, and it's you know it especially gets into of course the I mean getting old is suffering getting ill is suffering getting what you want is suffering not getting what you want is suffering But of course, the aging issue, he does talk quite a bit about that. Um, So, yeah, we don't want to hear about suffering because we're dealing with it every day. So you kind of go, kind of hurt. I don't really want to hear about it. On the other hand, that reactivity, when you even say that to yourself, Really, I don't want to hear about this. Is exactly how we, moment to moment, push away creating enough space to allow it to be. And, um, and not, as Ram Dass says, not turn ourselves off. Bear the unbearable. And that's... Uh, I mean, this is all very, again... On two levels, one level is words are are difficult. The experiential part of dealing with each moment and when we're talking about the kind of gravitas here around this subject or certainly suffering and then at the same time, it is good to bring in enough awareness into one's life that you start to uh, use different methods and Ramdas's main one of course is uh, is a witness identified with unjudging spirit and uh, intuitive heart and from that point one can really see how we push away a, a suffering And so it is good to gather some information that allows some space to be created. So that, as he calls it, we are uh we are just living truth, we are living spirit within the midst of of the constant change of nature, and it's how to how to live within that change from the changeless place anyhow, great talk. here's a wonderful story. he goes to an aging luncheon and and he's surrounded by cosmetic companies, like are giving people skin stuff, right and and experimenting with their skins, like when you pinch your skin, if it comes back or not, And of course, Ram Dass, It didn't come back. I guess this, he was a little bit older then. And um, just the pushing away, again, aging, pitting yourself against nature, you know, you don't want to sit and watch it decay. It's terrible. I had a great talk. Why suffering? And, uh, and this is Ramdas's Here and Now podcast on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And of course, there are so many wonderful uh, podcasts and, and more to come. We are adding more people who tickle the fancy of what it is that we feel like we want to share so we're happy about that and um, you can catch me by the way if you haven't on my own podcast that I sit and chat with different people who I feel have something to offer to share called Mind Rolling so you can go there that's beherenownetwork.com/slash mindrolling we shall see you Next time, on Ramdas, here and now: What I want to talk about um,
1: the first evening, I remember I talked about um, awakening and then uh, the, the kind of ascent and descent and getting the integration together of the uh, planes of consciousness, of, of awareness, and then the daily life existence, psychosocial, physical, psychosocial plane and integrating these. And then yesterday I talked about it going the other way of the awareness coming into form and then the awakening and the awakening back into awareness. So it was coming down and up again. Now, um, one of the sticking points in the spiritual journey is um, a lot of is is um, the relation as we've talked about about getting high and being free. That um, for me in 1974 or five, I really fully realized my predicament. I had now been on the journey for about 15 years, and when I spiritually started to awaken the Eastern models that were available to me were basically renunciate models. They were basically rooted in the assumption that the desire systems on the physical, psychological plane were so powerful and one was addicted to them so strongly that the only way to start to tune to these quieter, deeper, other planes of consciousness was to um, remove oneself from the environments in which the worldly desire systems were operative. So, therefore, if you could go into a cave, or go to an ashram, and in the ashram there was celibacy, and there was um, lack of spicy foods, and there was lack of social interplay, and there were no advertising things, and you didn't read the newspapers, and you didn't listen to the radio, and you just pulled yourself back from the kind of panoply of worldly desires in order to quiet down enough to hear these other planes of consciousness. And you get incredibly high under those conditions. You know, I, uh, my uh, energies, and, and I'm doing a, a tremendous amount of uh, kundalini or energy work with my breath, uh, the energy was just, I was like wired uh, and slept very little and had uh, so much light coming out of my head and so on. And um, the predicament that I finally recognized, um, which uh, those of you that know my material have heard me talk about this a lot, was that the Buddhist doctrine that the cause of suffering is the attraction and the aversion in the mind that even though I was high and really out there and in bliss and rapture, there was still inherent in that situation suffering. The reason was because there was an aversion to the physical, worldly, psychological stuff. That is, I had gotten high through pushing it away. And I didn't really want to have commerce with it people come to me and they, I mean, they used to, they don't anymore, but they used to come to me and they'd say, I live in the mountains because the cities really bring me down. And they'd say, could you give me a spiritual practice? And before 74, I would say, well, meditate more deeply, do more pranayama and stuff. After 74, I'd say, go live in the city. Because I began to see that the pushing away of the world, was a stance and that that stance made me frightened of that world it frightened that it would uncut it would undercut my high it would undercut my feeling of spiritual connectedness and so around the middle 70s I really did a, an about face and um, some of you remember my that later much later when I met um, my um, Disembodied friend Emmanuel, and um, I said to Emmanuel through the woman who is the channel for him, um, I said, Emmanuel, what am I doing on this plane? Who who made this error? I mean, why am I in the world? I'm much too pure for this. And he said, Ramdas, he said, you're in school. Why don't you try taking the curriculum? And it really did. It was, it was, that was just one of the, the reason I bring him up is because that way of stating it was extremely useful to me. Because I began to look at my life situation as a curriculum that was designed in order to help me awaken and become free. Now, the predicament with coming back and facing the world is that when you have opened a lot spiritually, and then turn and look at the world, what you are aware of is the absolute immensity of the suffering that is inherent in existing in form. And, for most of us, uh, the way we deal in our daily lives with the suffering that exists in the world, the fact that there are so many billions of people at this moment whose stomachs lack proper food and nourishment, who are hungry. I mean, how do we deal with it? We're sitting here having had a wonderful breakfast and we're dealing with our brothers and sisters who are, who are starving. And some of us have money in the bank and these people are still starving. And we are part of a web of a situation that is creating suffering. We can say, oh, they did it to themselves, but we know that that's fraudulent, that's not the way it is. We're part of conditions that have suffering inherent within them. Now, most of us deal with that through devices of denial, through turning away, through hardening. What we do is we armor our hearts. We veil our hearts with our minds. We have rationalizations. Well, I can't do anything about it, or I gave at the office, or whatever we do to give ourselves the feeling we can go on in the presence of this suffering and function. And very few of us fully appreciate the cost of that, the cost of that kind of armoring of the heart. Because that you and I as uh, entities, just like our intellects are fed by ideas, Our spirit or intuitive heart is fed by a boundless interaction with that which is around us, where there are no boundaries. You could call it love, you could call it presence, you could call it isness, there are a lot of words they don't describe, they just point at it. But you can tell, you know yourself that when you love something, when you love a rose or you love another person or you love a beauty or you love, you know how it feeds you, the way in which love feeds you. And you, it feeds each other in a loving relationship. And so you can say, I can love her or him, but I can't love them because I can't afford to because that's too much suffering for me. The cost of doing that veiling means that you protect your heart and it feels protected and less vulnerable, but it is also very deadened in the process. There's no longer the kind of living spiritual interchange of energy that comes from being in love in the universe. And I think people go around, most people go around running on about one or two cylinders out of their eight or something. And they have cut themselves off, and they live, the veil of the heart is the mind. And they have veiled themselves with thought, which makes them feel safe, but also cuts down the, the juice, the feeding of the spirit. And I don't know how to say the feeding of the spirit isn't quite the right term, but you Got a, you have a sense of what I'm trying to talk about. But it seems very difficult to conceive of how you would deal with the immensity of the suffering without closing down your heart. How could you bear it? How can you bear what is un- basically unbearable? I mean, the immensity of the suffering, and you don't have to go to the poor, you can look at the rich. Look at the lines in their faces, look at the tension, look at the panic, look at the, look at people that are involved in any of the economic systems of the world at the moment. Look at the the fear that is generated by the instability of these systems and you will see tremendous suffering everywhere. And you'll see people buying things to make themselves happy and then not being happy with the thing they bought and that's forms of suffering. Getting what they wanted is a suffering. Isn't it funny? Getting old is suffering because it's all changing and your body is being getting ill and failing and that's all can be suffering. Dying is suffering. These are all can be sufferings. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So that the issue... Is how do you respond to the immensity of the suffering around you in a way that doesn't close you down? In which you don't have to use your mind in order to protect your heart. That seems to me to be the issue that I I find at the root of why people find the world scary. Because they will get overwhelmed by the suffering around them, their own and everybody else's. I mean in in the United States now, in any major city in Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco, you are constantly, when you're walking through the main part of town, walking over homeless people that are living in doorways that are now in you're used to it in India, if you live in Calcutta, half the population's living like that. And everybody, and but in the United States, the affluent United States, it seems bizarre that people are, some people are living so well and some people are living so badly and they can't, they, we can't get the system together to have enough equity to give everybody uh, at least shelter and food and clothing. And if you look at the faces of the people that are walking by, the homeless people who are begging, you can see the cost of the turned-offness. You, you can just see it. Now, um, to get to the answer to how I, how I deal with this, Because, I'll tell you in advance, that I deal with this by cultivating more than one plane of consciousness. That is that um, through uh, the practices and the metaphysical study and the kind of experiences in these other realms of consciousness, when I come into a perceptual vantage point in which I look at a leaf, or a drop of water, or stars, planets, and I see the extraordinarily exquisite and awesome nature of the lawful relationships of phenomena, one to another. And I can find that law, different kinds of laws, but the same law, the same Tao, the same way of things. I can find that in music. I can find it in, in genetics, in chemistry. I can find it in each field that I attend to. And one it can't help but be filled with awe at the magnificence of the way it all works. And then one realizes within that that the way it all works includes suffering. And you can say, well, it's all perfect except for the suffering. If it weren't for suffering, everything would be perfect. But when you look at the way in which the formless comes into form, it starts out with two, it starts out with positive and negative energy. If you don't have positive and negative charge, you don't start manifestation and form. It starts out with dark and light. If you don't have dark and light, you don't have discrimination and form. Then you've got good and evil. You've got all the polarities. The minute you open the door to polarity, the minute you go from one to two, you open to all the polarities. And the universe of matter of form, of all form, is rooted in two. Before two, there's one, and with one, there's no manifestation. So, and then I say, and this is partly rationalization, it's partly my intellect playing, that the people that like my guru and the people, the mystics that I've come in contact with, who I know are wide open to what is in the world, look at suffering differently than I look at it. And I see that my perception is defined by my identification with me as a physical, psychological entity. That color is what I'm able to see of the mystery of the universe. And that coloring awakens in me empathy and generates in me fear when I am in the presence of so much suffering. and i see that when i when i read the words of the masters spiritual masters when i plumb the depths of mysticism as best as my light will allow there are moments when i feel that that the mystery has an inherent wisdom in it that my rational linear analytic mind cannot understand cannot grok it cannot handle it because my intellectual analytic judging rational mind is a subsystem within a meta-system and those of you that understand logic know that a subsystem cannot subsume a meta-system under it. So I am faced with the predicament that the tool that I have developed, which is my analytic mind, is inadequate to the task of understanding the nature of suffering. And all I can end up doing with my mind is judging it and judging God and saying, somehow, somebody screwed up badly, instead of saying, maybe I don't understand. So you can hear that that's partly rationalization of the mind, but it's rooted in something very deep that uh, is very true in my being. And I've given the example that some of you have found as outrageous as I did when I first uh, when it first happened. When I was in India in 1971, second time I was there, there was tremendous devastation in Bangladesh. And I had a Volkswagen Microbus and I wanted to use it as an ambulance and go over and help. And it turned out, had I gone, It wouldn't have worked. I mean, there were miles of cars and nothing happened. gas ran out and everything, but um, at the time, I was so upset about the plight of these people that I was distraught. And I went to my guru to get his blessings to go with my car to do this. And he wouldn't stop me. I mean, he wouldn't do anything. He said, of course, if you desire, do what you want. But he said, then he was quiet for a minute and he said, Ramdas, he said, Don't you see it's all perfect? And I remember, here I love this man so deeply, but I remember feeling as if this was an obscenity. That he had just said something obscene to me. How could he say that children starving to death was perfect? How could he say it? How could he even conceive of it? Now, he wasn't saying that it didn't stink. He wasn't saying it wasn't awful. He was saying, with all that, he said, what he was saying to me was, and he was a person of incredible compassion that I knew. I mean, I've watched him cry many times. He fed his, everybody he could, he did what he could all the time. What he was saying is, Ramdas, you've lost your balance. You're out of balance. And the balance is the balance of planes of consciousness. The balance is getting so obsessed with the suffering that you end up railing against the unknown organization of it all, even though your mind can't understand it. It's like saying, I assume the mystery is a failure. But you don't know that it's a mystery and there is now i could see immediately that one could use oh it's all perfect like it's all karma as a rationalization for not acting and we're not we're not talking about the cheap cop out that is not what we're dealing with here we're dealing with where one can stand in one's in one's awareness that allows one to be in the presence of what is in the universe without closing the heart. Because if you close or armor the heart in order to be in the universe, you have become a crippled instrument for the healing of the universe. So the exercise is, how do you keep your heart open in hell, basically? Because it is a hell of suffering, if you look at it that way. Now part of it has to do with the fear of the vulnerability of the breaking heart. My heart will break. My heart is breaking. remember I wrote a letter to a couple whose daughter had just, with her girlfriend, had gone to play tennis, her 11-year-old daughter, and had been raped and murdered. And I just couldn't conceive of the anguish and pain that these parents were feeling of, and yet I had to write a letter. I had to do something because they were people that were connected. And I said there's very little I could say that would that would deal with your anguish. And I said, you are being forced to bear the unbearable. And when you are forced to bear the unbearable, something dies in you. What dies in you is who you were that couldn't bear the unbearable. Because there it is, there's the unbearable, and you say, unbearable to whom? Unbearable to who I think I am. And if you, and in order to preserve who I think I am, you armor yourself against the unbearable. You're bearing the unbearable. That is the root of the deepest compassion in the world. That's where compassion comes from. You're being turned into an instrument of compassion. It's a very fierce lesson. And neither of us, neither I nor your daughter would give it to you, but there it is, that's the legacy, that's what you're getting from this. And if you look, if you individually look at your own suffering in this life, whatever kind of sufferings you have had, sufferings of isolation, of inadequacy, of failure, of loss, of grief, They've hurt like hell. If you've been open, your heart has broken. But here you are. Here you are. And some of you, I am sure, can see the way in which that suffering burned deep into you and created in you a different quality of your own being. And it's very hard to imagine a system, a curriculum, that is designed in which Suffering 102 is part of the coursework for becoming a full human being. Now, as I said, there's a tremendous fear of the vulnerability to your human heart. I can't bear it. I've got to look away. Many of us had the experience when we were, some of us still are, but very young, of having our first love affair, our first intense attachments, and having them go awry, and having our hearts broken, and thinking, I'll never open my heart again. It's too painful. A few didn't, but most of us, After a while, after we grieved for our loss, something turned and we were ready again to start again. And many of us have opened our hearts many times and had them broken many times, and we keep growing and growing and growing and growing. Instead of looking at that as the failures of life and the pathology, to look at it as the process of life, just that little flip of consciousness, is the process of your life. I look back on the sufferings of my life, and I I may be really weird, but I see them now as gifts. I wouldn't have asked for them in a second. I hated them while I was having them. I protested as loudly as I could, but they happened anyway. And now, in retrospect, as I look back, I now see the way in which they deepened my being immeasurably." Now, there's an interesting distinction that's important to make here. In the, um, the Noble Truths that the Buddha enunciated, he talks about suffering, being inherent in the way of things, And then he talks about the end of suffering and he points out that the cause of the suffering of an individual has to do with the way in which their mind responds to phenomena. Like the example I usually use when I was young, I had hair and then I started to lose it and I was still in my mind somebody who had hair. So I let it grow long and I wrapped it around my head so I could be someone with hair. And then I always was aware of the way the wind was blowing. And I always, I was like Rodin's thinker. I was always like this to hold my hair in place. And I was suffering. I was suffering because my mind was holding onto a model of who I was that I wasn't any longer. And finally, I let go and I just decided that I am. And that just because the car is a little worn around the edges, there was a great moment. Um, I was invited to give, uh, to speak at Saks Fifth Avenue, which is a very um, tony, um, department store in Beverly Hills, California And I was uh, speaking on behalf of La Prairie Cosmetics Which prepares a cream for aging to avoid aging okay? It's a very fancy cream and they have a sanitarium in Switzerland where you can be repumped and rebuilt and revitalized and toned up and you can be eternally young dead or alive and um, so, uh, my friends all said, well, you certainly aren't going to do this. I mean, you don't believe in these kinds of creams. I mean, you think aging should be, you know. And, but they were offering me $12,000 for basically a 15-minute slot, which, um, now, I don't sell out. I mean, it's not that kind of look, but but um, I... Um, I raise money for the Sava Foundation, which does cataract surgery among the poor in Nepal and India. And a surgery that gives somebody back their sight and thus their working capacity in their life costs, well, it's been going up, but it's about $35, $40 now. And if you divide $40 into 12000 that's a lot of human suffering that's alleviated. And I thought, could I compromise my principles to do this? After all... Christ went and spoke to the, you know, why shouldn't I? You know, like, <laughs> good enough for Christ, what the hell? So I thought I can go to Beverly Hills and to Saks Fifth Avenue. It's, I'll teach Dharma, it doesn't matter. They, I had given a lecture on aging, and they wanted sort of some intellectual content to this luncheon. So I was the rent and intellect. And um, so I was on the program with... um of various I mean they had these tables they had the 200 largest uh, customers best customers of Saks, personal invitation to come to luncheon and then La Prairie had a, a, a cosmetologist whatever they are at each because medicine cosmetic somebody that was at each table to help them with what creams they would need to protect themselves and So the person that spoke before me was the skin nutritionist and um, a doctor. And um, she got up and she said, let's run an experiment. She said, would you all put your hands in the middle of the table? And then she said, if you take a little piece of skin and hold it, and hold it for five seconds, she counted, and then she said, now let it go. And the rate at which it goes back will show how vital your skin is and how healthy you are. And so we all did this in the middle of the table, and when I let go, my skin didn't go back. I mean, in fact, it's still there. I would be there if I didn't push it back, you know. And they were all horrified. I mean, it was just like I had walked in without my pants on or something. I mean, this was. But what disturbed them even more was that I didn't care. They get sent me a big box of creams, I want you to know. I mean, they really felt that I was an extreme, um extremist. <laughs> but I began to see, uh, I mean, I looked and I saw, again, so much suffering. Because the thing about aging is that it, like, nat- like everything else in nature, is sort of built into the system. And when you pitch yourself against the system, the nature of things, you would think that you'd think somebody would be smart enough to see that inherent in that would be suffering. To put yourself against um, the way in which it all unfolds. I mean, this body is decaying. I can watch it decay. It's really—I mean—it's now. I took care of my father when he was dying at ninety, and. Now I can see in my hands the beginning of those hands that I knew holding his hand as he was dying. I can see the loose skin and the veins and the spots and the. Oh God, it's so beautiful. Instead of, ooh, aging. Now, the culture, I mean, I just contracted to do my next book on aging because the dysfunctional mythology around aging is one of the creators of so much suffering and the undermining of such a deep resource of wisdom in the world, the way in which we deal with aging. So the suffering, as the Buddha pointed out, is connected to the way the mind holds on to certain things that are disparate from the way something is. Now, knowing that, to really understand the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, the way in which one can let go of the clinging of mind by the meditative practice, by drawing the awareness back from the identification with thought, etc., those kind of things we've been talking about. The appreciation of that makes you finally realize that every experience you have of suffering, not the one you don't ask for it, but the ones that just naturally come you can immediately begin, if I am suffering, where can I look to alleviate my suffering? Well, if I'm suffering because I'm hungry, I can eat. But if I am suffering, one of the places I must look is how my mind is defining the reality to create the suffering. Like, pain is pain, suffering is something else. You can have a pain and not suffer, or you can have a pain and suffer. Pain is strong stimulation, is what it is. I like to go to the dentist and say, I don't want any Novocaine. He's drilling, and I go, ah! He says, is it it painful? I say, yes. He says, you want Novocaine? No. I mean, I'm a, a nut, but I'm attempting to take the pain and play with it to see what my tolerance is before it becomes suffering. Because pain is just pain, whether I make it into suffering or not. And I really realized when I was in the villages of India, I was living with people that were living so far below the poverty level of the United States. They were living with so little and when I looked in their hearts and in their eyes and in their beings, they were suffering a hell of a lot less than the middle class was in America. Now, I don't want to romanticize it and say, oh, wonderful, poverty is great and all that, but I could see. And the the experience that was so profound for me was um, in Benares, in the city of uh, dying in India. Uh, This story that I've told many times. When I went to Benares immediately after I got to India, the first time in 1967, I was appalled. I mean, there were literally tens of thousands of people who had a loincloth that's all and a begging bowl and they had just a, they had a little pouch on there on the uh, their loincloth which had enough money in it for the wood for their burning for the burning of their body and they had cancer and leprosy and all of that and the horror of that drove me back to my hotel i couldn't stand it I went back to the hotel, and I actually, I mean, I was in such pain, I got under the bed. That's how how caught I was, because I had these traveler's checks, and I had, you know, all this good stuff from the West, and, and I couldn't stand the pain. Shortly thereafter, I met my guru, and shortly, and then I spent the winter in a temple, and I began to study Hinduism, and I began to experience that the people I was living with in India for the most part, we're living in a very different reality than I was. They were living in a different plane of consciousness. And I went back to Benares in the spring. And I met the same people. But now, my reactivity, I wasn't hardened. My heart was very open. But I was appreciating that, they, that these people had lived their lives because they lived in a reincarnational reality. They had lived their lives with the hope that they might die in Benares, which is the most auspicious place to die spiritually. And they had made it. They were going to die in Benares. And these people were realizing their dream. I was focused on their matchstick legs and their sores. They were focusing on what that meant to them. And when I quieted down enough to look into their eyes and to be with them, I saw them looking at me with pity. Because they saw me as like a hungry ghost wandering through the universe with no place to be at home. And they knew just where they were. And they were, they were at home. Now, this is not, I, as I said, I want to romanticize it, and it's all still plenty of work for Mother Teresa, but I just want to say that there are different planes of reality at which one understands what's going on. And these people were not suffering in the way I projected into them suffering was. So, understanding the way the mind relates to the nature of suffering leads one to take one's own sufferings and see them as an opportunity to examine the way the mind clings. The way the mind clings. Like the whole process of getting old and feeble and dependent. Now, people that have been fiercely independent say, I hate being dependent. But I work with a lot of people that are ill and dying, and I watch some people who do the dependency number with such grace that they end up feeding everybody that's taking care of them. I watch people that are old and frail who need to be taken care of, and they end up being a gift to everybody that's taking care of them. Because they are not at odds with themselves. They This is the moment. I mean, at the moment when I was changing my father's diapers, as he had changed mine, people would say, oh, how disgusting. To him and me, it wasn't disgusting at all. It was like a beautiful completion of a cycle. I mean, he had to, his mind had turned quite a bit to the point where he could enjoy it. But at that moment, he was absolutely, radiantly happy and peaceful and relaxed. That was a guy who had never been happy like that. I mean, he always was independent. And then he, something gave up. And he turned into this other being and he just massaged his body and he just smiled all the time. I think that when we get to those edges where we say, well, I'm not, I couldn't handle that, or That's, I'm not doing that, or... R-r-r. You look, there is the root of your suffering, where the mind is in relation to the phenomenal field. I mean, I didn't marry and I didn't have children. Some people say, oh, isn't that too bad? It may be too bad I didn't marry and I didn't have children. That's just the way it is. I could make myself miserable about it. Hello, I'm somebody that didn't marry and didn't have children. Poor thing. You know, I could milk it for all it's worth. Yeah. The reason the book on aging is such fun for me to think about now at 63 is that this is my curriculum now for the next whatever number of years are remaining to see if I can dance through this one without denial, without closing down, without suffering, without panic. Watching the way in which the society disempowers me, watching the way that that my energies are less reliable, watching the way my patterns of life change, watching the way I have to economically probably live more carefully, watching a lot of things happen, and ah, new moment. Ah, new moment. Ah, new moment. Instead of ah, instead of taking, being taken, struggling into every turn of circumstance. Now, to understand those Buddhist teachings about suffering doesn't mean that you can then use that as a rationalization for other people's suffering. Say, well, they're suffering because of their mind. And that forces you to deal with this interesting paradox. That you understand that for an awakened person, suffering is actually grace because suffering shows you where the mind is caught. And in that sense, it is an extremely useful gift. But you can't go up to somebody who's suffering and say, it's a useful gift. You really don't have any moral right to lay it upon another person. Even though it is the root cause of suffering. And you couldn't; it wouldn't work anyway. You've got, and this is a really interesting one. It was really hard for me to recognize that you don't have a moral right to try to take away somebody else's suffering. What you can be is an environment that is spacious enough where they can let go of their suffering if they're ready, but it is not your right. If they say, I am suffering and what I need is a new car, and you say, that won't satisfy you, or take your need for a new car and turn it into grace, probably won't work. It probably won't work. It probably won't work. It might, but it probably won't work. And I think what you do is you relieve suffering in whatever way you can. And for different people, suffering is different. For one person, it's hungry, you give them food. For another person, you invite them to fast. Same thing of not eating. The appreciation of the levels at which suffering is created. And know that you are, that the more, the more your awareness is extricated, from identification with a finite time and space locus, with your body and your personality, the more your awareness permeates and is part of what is. Out of that quality of being arises a compassion. Because it's us suffering. It's the suffering in the universe. And just as if your body were suffering, you would do something. If your left hand were suffering, your right hand would pull it out of the fire or do something to help it. So you do what you can to relieve suffering. Because it's no longer their suffering. It's no longer her suffering or his suffering. It's the suffering. And it's no longer your compassion. It's the compassion and you begin to see the dance of suffering and compassion, and you're just part of the dance. So, what you can develop through the awareness that expands to embrace the mystery of the universe, that expands to allow for the mystery of the universe, and allows for the appreciation of the beauty and awe of the law of the universe, Those planes of consciousness balance and give perspective to the plane of consciousness in which you are a separate entity in which your individual heart is breaking when you look at the suffering. It gives you a perspective that allows your heart to break again and again and again and again. In the work that I do with people that are ill and dying, it has taken me a long time to understand how deeply, because I didn't quite know how to deal with it, how deeply I fall into love with each of these people. And how attendant to that quality of falling into love is the is the pain of the loss of the Beloved. And while there is the pain of the loss of the Beloved, there is also the quality of being with that being independent of loss. It's, I'll miss your form, but our essences are here. Where are we going to go? So I don't have a formula to keep your heart from breaking. I have a formula to keep you from getting so caught in your broken heart that you turn bitter, cynical, and close yourself down from life. Because I think the art form is to stay wide open and vulnerable in life. And sit with the mystery and with the awe and with the pain, sit with it all. Just read the newspaper. You want suffering? Just read the newspaper and watch what happens to your heart with each item. Rwanda, Bosnia, rape, theft, exploitation, Etc. Just watch. To read a paper meditatively is a really interesting experience. To find a spaciousness and then read the newspaper as these phenomena arising that are part of the human condition. What the human condition is at the moment has in it greed, it has lust, it has fear, it has anger. It has violence, it has all of that stuff and It also has beauty, tenderness, care, joy, play. I'll tell you, if you think you can be happy by denying the pain and sadness in the world, I'll tell you, that isn't true happiness. If your happiness only comes like, let's not think about Rwanda today so we can be happy. The sun is out, let's not think about Rwanda. That's like that thing as a child I used to say, okay, now you've got to promise me you'll do what I say. All right, don't think about a rhinoceros. All right, I won't think about a rhinoceros. And you can't not think about the rhinoceros unless you have incredible discipline. The cost of armoring your heart against what is, is more costly than you may appreciate. and to open to what is and allow the pain. I've found that in the, that wonderful catchphrase, be here now, which I've been growing into for the last 30 years, since 20 years, um, that here now has within it a richness that is enough, enough. And when somebody says to me, "Ramdas, are you happy?" People come up and say, "Are you happy?" Can I stop and think about it? Look inside. I mean, every time a question comes, a good chance to really ask it. Say, "Yeah, I'm happy." Somebody else comes up and says, "Ramdas, are you sad?" Think about it. Yeah, I'm sad. Ramdas, are you hopeful? Yeah, I'm hopeful. Ramdas, is it hopeless? Yep, it's hopeless. It's extraordinary. I mean, I realized in just honestly answering these questions that all of the stuff was present. Now, imagine what thickness there is to a moment in time that has everything present. This moment has in it the people in Rwanda. It doesn't not have them here. This moment has the richness and thickness of the broken heart, of the joy of the mother and father holding their new baby, of the rose in bloom, of the the heartache, of grief, of the loss of a long-term loved one. It has all of it in it. And it's thick, it's thick, it's thick with just living truth. And to be part of that is to really be like living spirit within the system. There is a line in the Tao that says, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. When you wish it were different, you can't see what is. Can't see what he And the expanding of ourselves to embrace, to keep embracing, to keep embracing. Ugh. Embracing into ourselves. Instead of I'm this fragile little thing, keep away from me, I can't stand that. Don't get near me. I don't want to deal with that suffering today. Thank you. I've got to protect myself. Versus, ah, ah. Not long ago, I took a uh, a chemical, uh, a, a nine-minute acid trip, because um, I experiment with my consciousness when the opportunity presents itself. And in that, I turned into this um, huge woman. Um, she was black, she, she was naked, sitting like this, had great breasts. She was reaching out and drawing all of the children, all of the beings, who were all children, into herself. And she was um, gorging on it. I was gorging on it. It was like, uh, uh. and I and the people that I was with were running for a bucket, thinking I was about to vomit. And I was gorging on it. And at the same moment, I was in absolute ecstasy. I was in absolute ecstasy. And I saw it was the ecstasy of not turning myself off to the life around me, to all of it, to what it is. And it scares the hell out of me. Because to bear the unbearable, you die. Who you are dies into being it.
0: You are compassion. You don't have compassion. You are compassion. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org.